Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. On for January 30th, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Siflett. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have y'all both on the show. And I want to go ahead and set it up. In about 20 minutes, uh, coming on to the show for the first time from Split Ticket and among other things, is Mr. Lakshia Jane, and he'll be coming on talking to us about a lot about the Senate races, but um, maybe some other topics, including the Georgia poll as well, and just, you know, letting us know about his background. So we're looking forward to Lakshia Jane joining us um, here in the bit. But until then, we're going to cover some other topics, and the first and foremost topic was pretty early in the week. Uh, you might could have called it midweek, but it definitely has been out there a few days. Um, Stephen Breyer has announced that he is going to submit his um, retirement to the Supreme Court. I almost said resignation, and that may be the technical term. But when you serve 27 years on the Supreme Court, I, I feel you probably ought to get a retirement party. Um, but he's going to retire. That's going to create an opening. Um, since he served 27 years, the second longest uh, serving member on the current court after Clarence Thomas, I think we'd be remiss without mentioning something about his career. Um, Catherine, thoughts on um, Justice Breyer um, stepping down? Well, I'm I'm really glad he decided to do it now. Um, it gives uh, President Biden and our uh, people time to make a good selection, and there should not be any delays, though. Lord knows McConnell will try to find some, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, he has a storied um, career of being a, you know, good liberal justice. Um, so hopefully we'll find someone in that stead who will replace him, and hopefully it's someone very young. <laughs> yeah. Um, Tim, your thoughts on Justice Breyer stepping down? Well, I'm with Catherine. I'm very glad he's doing it. We all recall that um, the late Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, uh, did not uh, do so um, when uh, President Obama was in office and, uh, you know, what happened after. And uh, there's no doubt, you know, let's just say it, that if Biden nominated anyone when faced with a GOP-controlled Senate, that the GOP, I believe, would just leave that seat open for up to two years if they had to do so. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad this, uh, this is happening now, and it needs to be taken care of quickly. 
Yeah, um, I'll say this. I mean, I don't think uh, Justice Breyer was you know, in any way a groundbreaking choice or anything, and not that everybody has to be because we're going to get to the point where we've had some diversity, and it's not going to, you know, it's just not going to be all the time, you know, uh, you know, history-making choices, but he, you know, did a solid job 27 years. I mean, the court has turned over a great deal. Only um, Clarence Thomas has been on there longer. And um, maybe he saw what happened to Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They both, you know, got themselves in situations on opposite sides of the aisle where they tried to hang on a little longer so a president of their party um, could nominate someone. Well, I don't know his health situation. He Hopefully he may have, you know, health and vibrance and everything, um, and he may say, hey, I can get out now. I served 27 years. I mean, that's a, a career in a lot of industries, and that's all the time, but include all the time before he got on the Supreme Court uh, that he served in the legal field. Um, and so maybe he can enjoy his, um, you know, final years instead of, you know, giving his life to the court, um, literally. And so good for him if he can do this. Now, the political reality is it should be a situation where, um, you know, President Biden can nominate someone and that person can be confirmed. It really shouldn't be that hard. It's become so much harder in recent years than it had to be. I mean, other than someone that would be grossly unqualified or has gross offenses of moral turpitude, it should be pretty much the president's discretion. Wouldn't you say so, Catherine? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's the way it's always been until recently. Tim, why has it become so tough? Why do you think? Well, everything has become partisan. Everything. It doesn't yeah. matter what it is. There, there's a side taken in everything, and with a hyper-partisan atmosphere that we have, even in the U.S. Senate now, uh, you, you can expect over one or two crossover votes. I mean, look at the last two of Trump's nominations. wasn't any, you know. Uh, and... You know, the the problem here, of course, is that the Democrats don't have any wiggle room. It's a 50-50 Senate, and uh, just for starters, they are going to need all 50 votes. Uh, There was word today that we might get a vote out of Lindsey Graham. But, you know, what I'm expecting to happen here is that – the nominee, whoever it is, is going to take some bumps and bruises and some heavy hits from, you know, Republicans in the uh, in the Judiciary Committee hearings, and uh, and then hopefully will be nominated in a close vote. That's the best case scenario, but that's where we are right now. No, no one should expect any better. It's just not going to happen, and not for a long time. Yeah, well, let's kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of take a step back. Before we talk about the process, there's been a short list that came out, um, and, and, and it's got several names on it, and there may be some more names that get added. Uh, Tim I, and Catherine, I think y'all are more versed on some of the names that I am. Um, so kind of uh, do one of y'all want to volunteer to give the list of the 
uh, contenders that are being speculated for nomination? Oh, I can't remember the their top, names. The top Go three, ahead, Tim, you know. The top three that I have seen are uh, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, who's on the D.C. Uh, Court of Appeals. Uh, she was uh, confirmed last June to that court by a 53-47 vote with Graham Collins and uh, Murkowski voting for her. Um, she's 51 years old. Uh, the California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger is also one of the top names mentioned. She's 45. The third name mentioned is Michelle Childs. Now, she is at present nominated for a position on that same D.C. Court of Appeals that Judge Jackson is on. Uh, That nomination is pending. The interesting thing about her is that she is from South Carolina. And so, you know, is James Clyburn, who, even though he won't be voting, believe me, he will be letting it be known who he is supporting, And, uh, of course, Lindsey Graham, who said he might be open to supporting the nominee, is also from that. Those are the top three names I hear. There are altogether like 21 that have been mentioned, all African-American women. Yeah, and we'll get into that in a second. Now, I wanted to ask you about the the South Carolina name. Um, You know, we keep mentioning Lindsey Graham, and I had a question there as well, but an African-American woman from South Carolina, could that not also put pressure on Tim Scott? Catherine, you think so? Could. That's a good point. Um, It could. But, again, you know, back to what Tim was saying about the partisan, um, you know, a, a lot of this, aside from being partisan, it's also this idea of not giving uh, Democrats any wins You know it's not just Partisan it's also uh, Almost like a sports analogy You know like we can't Let them win um, I mean that's part of the partisan thing But it's even more extreme So there's there's going to be Pressure from some of the You know More partisan Republicans to not support whoever the nominee is. So these Republicans are going to have to, you know, be mavericky if they do actually come out and support. Yeah. Well, at the same time is, you know, you talk about, people talk about, oh, the Republicans can't win, the Democrats can't win, whichever way you look at it. But at times, it's can the American people win. And, you know, the, 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 the American governmental system was set up with three branches to be a check and balance on each other, and the judicial branch, the highest court is the Supreme Court. And if you left it for two-plus years with eight members, you very easily could come up with lots of four-four decisions, which means you would have no resolution from one functioning oh. branch of the government, and it wouldn't be functioning. So yeah, there would no, you wouldn't. That's one of the selling arguments the Democrats are going to have to do is – it's not about Democrats getting a win. It's about let's have an odd number to have a functioning, you know, majority. Oh, David, we all know that. Everyone so knows that. Everyone knows that. It's not. But that's you got to sell that. 
Yeah. Well, well you got to push that point through because obviously, if you look at the polls on a well, lot of issues, Democrats are popular. There's just a messaging issue, and it needs to be about not about Democrats they, winning, not about you, progressives winning, or causes. It needs to be about the American people get a getting a functioning three branch government. That needs to be the narrative, Tim. That's not going to work. There ain't going to be any four <laughs> four votes. There might be a lot of six two votes occasionally with Roberts. There might yeah. be a five three vote, but I am telling you. That is it. If Mitch McConnell can find a way to severely slow down, hamper, or through some miracle block this appointment, he's going to do it. He's already setting it up by talking that socialist, wide-eyed, liberal, radical nonsense. And I think whoever the nominee is going to be is is going to get tested uh, severely, you know, in committee before it ever gets to the floor. And you know, McConnell is not interested in any of these arguments except one, how can I win? That, I mean, that's simply what Mitch McConnell is all about, winning. Well, let's get into the political calculus. The American people are going to watch this, and hardcore partisans on the right may love it. Hardcore partisans on the left may hate it. But what's that persuadable, you know, thirty percent? I mean, and I don't mean they they often switch from one side to the other. But that those people that are, are somewhat in the middle, they're not the hardcore partisans one way or the other. What are those folks going to think about a nomination? I getting held up for two months, getting held up for two full years. Could that not, in turn, have repercussions in November and possibly? flip some of these Senate races and deny Mitch McConnell the chance at a majority. Shouldn't he look at that political calculus, Catherine? Well, I don't – first of all, I don't think that there's a huge number of people in this country that pay that close attention to these things unless there's a big media splash about it, which there won't be. Um and second, I don't think that um, I, I don't I don't think the impact would be very severe. It, there might be a little bit of payback, but I don't think it's gonna I don't think it's gonna be huge because I don't I just don't think people pay attention until it affects them and. Honestly, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that the Supreme Court does that have an effect on us, you know, individuals, but a lot of people don't see that. And and it's interesting. There's going to be a lot of high-profile cases that come out in June. I guess my understanding is these are decisions that Justice Breyer will rule on and the announcements will be made in June. If some of those high-profile cases come out, and they're shockingly different, and then the Supreme Court has a, a vacancy, maybe that would shine more of a light. I mean, it, it's I, I know what you're I saying, like but, think but that, things but... like President Clinton was hugely unpopular until <laughs> Newt Gingrich shut down the government. It's kind of like sometimes a, a president will get, gain popularity, for example, Newt Truman, um, when he gets cracked on. 
this could no. be the final straw no. to where people no. you know, see how you know President Biden treated. So. Tim, what do you think? I mean, no. people people haven't aren't outraged about the um, upcoming abortion um, ruling, which is likely to be absolutely devastating to not just abortion but to women's health care. But people aren't paying any attention. They don't think it's going to happen or they don't think it's going to affect them. But it's going to affect a lot of people and not just people who want to have abortions. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I'm it's saying. Have a, that doesn't cause but, people but, to you know, get upset and they don't think it affects them, are we campaigning no. on the wrong issues then? If people just well, don't yeah, care, yeah, I if, mean, if we, people just don't uh, care, then this is kind of defeatist. Tim? Republicans vote on judges when they go to the polls. De- Democrats don't do that historically, never have. The American people had their chance to get very angry in 2016 when the Republicans held the Supreme Court seat open for a year, and you saw what they did. And further, you saw what Mitch McConnell will do when the shoe's on the other foot, which happened in September, uh, right before the presidential election in 2020. Mitch, you know, they're going to do whatever they need to do. And if until they are severely punished at the polls for it, they're going to continue to do it. Why wouldn't they do it? It's got, well, okay. you know, if there well, was some way they around. can get this seat, they're going to do it. Well, here's the thing. I said, should you do, should you do, should you do, and y'all shot down everything. What should you do then? I mean, what do you do to change this narrative to where people give a crap and you um, win back control of the political narrative? Because right now, every poll we're seeing, we are headed headlong into an election disaster. You've got to do something to change that. Um, This is one of those key moments. Uh, and if it's not a key moment, then you don't need it to take up any oxygen. You need to move on to the next thing. What do you do, Catherine? Well, I'm, you know, I'm a Pollyanna, so there's that. Uh, I don't, I, I'm not buying into any polls anymore. I just don't believe them. I don't, I just can't believe them anymore. Um, I mean, <laughs> they're, they're an interesting snapshot of what's happening at the moment, but that's it. I don't think they're predictive. That's my opinion. I know it's not very popular well, among uh, among y'all, but that's my opinion. Well, um, well, let's set polls aside. Gut feeling, if the election were held today, how do you think the Democrats would do? I think it would be hard, but I think we would maintain the Senate and the House. Okay. Um Tim, since, uh, and since you, know, you, can, you can use polling in your determination, what do you do to change this narrative? Well, first thing you do with this Supreme Court nomination, you just go ahead and work the process. That's all you can do. Biden nominates exactly. this person, and then they go through the process, and you hope you get them confirmed. If you don't get them confirmed, I don't think there's anything you can do. I certainly don't think it will change the election, no matter what you say. Uh, what needs to well, change okay, in the, the election is economic. 
but but I'll go ahead and tell you if you if you can't get someone confirmed, it looks like you can't function in government, and it's a net loss. And so you better get somebody confirmed uh, to be functional. Okay. Or if the Republicans stop you in convolute democracy, you better make that case. So there's your two options. You either you kind of do what Harry Truman did. You you know blame the do nothing Congress and. Blame this and of ain't course, 1948. Part of people that vote this is not 1948. Really, uh, oh, I know it is, but you yeah. have to learn from history and you have to do what's given to you. Um, when, when Joe Biden took office, it was closer to 1948 than it is today uh, for historical context. But I want to welcome into the show for the first time Mr. Lakshaya Jane. Welcome, Lakshaya. I think you got hello? the wrong guy. Um, yeah, hello. I, my name's Nathan in Orlando. I was just—I think you were expecting somebody else and thought I was him when we he called in. Yes, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I—I I just saw okay. a number on the screen that wasn't our, um, uh, wasn't one of us, and so I just said it was right out of oh. time for our guest. Yes, I'm sorry okay, about that, Nathan. Okay. We're glad you're listening. Well, yeah. Okay. Thanks, well, sir. I got something to say. I got something that's going to break. Yeah, okay, well, I, I'll keep looking for our guest um, best I can, and I'm saying I have the last word on something, and it ain't the last word. Well, let's kind of get into another element of this discussion. Um, you know, Joe Biden, back in the campaign, and this may have been the primary campaign, he made the statement that he would nominate an African-American woman to the Supreme Court. I think knowing going in, he knew there was going to be a pool of highly qualified people, that fit that demographic, therefore he was not worried in the least at saying that because he knew that there was going to be multiple people he could pick from, and, and as we've gone over the list, there are multiple people he can pick from that that clear that criterion, but the Republicans are trying to make an issue of it. Um, Catherine, how effective do you think that will be? I think it's ridiculous. I, I, I mean, I can't believe that we're – it's 2022, and this would be the first African-American woman that would be on the Supreme Court. Good grief. They're a huge part of our, our, um, our country, and they have – and we need to hear their voice. They need representation, and we have plenty of white guys on the Supreme Court. So let's, like, we, we need a more diverse court. We've always needed a more diverse court. So, yeah, I think the, the, argu- the any argument against it is ridiculous. Yeah. Tim, your thoughts on what the Republicans have started to kind of create as a narrative around this? Yeah, and the polling is showing it might be effective with the public. But in this case, I would not pay any attention to the polls or or anything else. And the reason is the man made a promise. It doesn't matter that it happened to be an African-American woman. It could have been a polka-dotted, you know, person from Europa or something. The, The point is the man made a promise, and he needs to keep that promise. The, uh, not to mention, you know, this is a significant voting block. Uh, but still, he made a, a, a promise, and he needs to keep that promise, and we've all heard that promise, and 
Uh, I'm used to uh, this president keeping his word about things, unlike the previous president, and so that's what he should do, polls be damned. Right, I agree. Yes. Well, um, we'll and, get into this discussion in a minute, but I want to welcome to the show uh, for the first time Mr. Lakshaya Jane. Welcome, Lakshaya. Hi, pleasure to be here. Thank you. Okay. Um, now, now, Lashawn, i got to put some pressure on you. Uh, we got Nathan in Orlando on the line as well. He called in just before you, so you got to really bring it, unlike, you know. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, Lashawn, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so um, I uh, got started with elections modeling uh a couple of years ago, I um, actually um, am a partner at the site Split Ticket. Um, we basically write about elections and make models and then rate the um, House and Senate and governor uh, maps and candidates that are up. And uh, we've been fortunate enough to be featured in sites like The Bulwark. And I also have written for sites like The Crystal Ball. So um I tend to just make data-backed and, um, you know, analytical models that try to explain electoral politics through the lens of data and numbers. Yes, and so um, you're out on the West Coast, I believe? That's correct. Okay, good deal. Well, I mean, now tell us, how long has Split Ticket been um, online and producing election analysis? It's actually only been around for about three, three and a half months, and in that time, we're actually very fortunate to have uh, gotten the type of attention that we that we did. Um, you know, I think we put out some pretty good content, and I'm pretty excited to see where it goes. Yes, all right. Well, we'll just start getting some analysis uh, from you right now. Um, and let's start off, um, I kind of prepped you with this. Two polls came out. Um, on the state of Georgia, one of Quinnipiac, one of the University of Georgia. Um, and, of course, uh, you may know more insights into those polling firms or those polling outfits history, because I know University of Georgia is not a polling firm. They just have a polling uh, firm, I guess, in the political science department. Um, but, you know, you saw the results. They weren't too drastically different than each other. Um, your take on what those data points and anything else recently Pretends for Georgia. Uh, are we talking about the Warnock versus Walker polls that have just come out? Well, the, the, the two, there was a Quinnipiac poll, and then there was a University of Georgia poll um, that came out. Yeah, yeah, those two. Right, and I, I believe the Quinnipiac one said um, Walker was up by one, and I think the AJC said that Walker was up by three. Yeah. Yes, and we you know, can talk about the governor's race and just the overall Georgia numbers. There was a lot of data in the you know in those polls. Yeah, you know a lot of people that I've spoken to think Georgia might be the hardest of the battleground states for the Republicans this year outside of New Hampshire, and part of the reason for that is because the Georgia GOP and the candidates there seem intent on relitigating 2020. We know from polling data that this is not what voters like to hear. It's not what voters like to think of. And, you know, even the GOP Speaker of the House, I believe, in Georgia had said, if Republicans rerun 2022 as a way to fight 2020, they will lose and it will be bad. And that's a viewpoint that I've heard that has been shared by quite a few people. 
That said, we rated the governor's race as a toss-up, and I actually personally think that if Kemp comes out of the primary alive, he will win against uh, Abrams. I don't think Abrams has been an exceptional candidate personally in, in her last run. I, I know she got a lot of acclaim, and she deserves credit for taking the jump in a state which was historically red. But when you look at the funding, when you look at the numbers, when you look at the data of the race, Abrams actually underperformed what you might have expected a generic Democrat to get. And it was an open seat, and Abrams ended up, losing in a race where her margin was about 10 points right of the nation. Now, if you compare that to Hillary Clinton's margin in 2016, where Georgia was about seven, I think actually, yeah, seven points right of the nation, you would kind of see that, you know, Georgia actually moved right relative to the nation in um, 2018, which is a bit of a surprise because it's actually moved left and, you know, from 2012 to 16, um, from 16 to 20, even from 20 to 21 with the Ossoff Warnock runoff. And I tend to think that the outlier there is actually Abrams candidate quality. So when I see the AJC poll saying that, you know, Kemp is up from Abrams on seven, Purdue's up on her by four, I think that's directionally correct. I think Purdue versus Abrams is probably a toss-up. I think Kemp versus Abrams, Kemp is favored. But that said, it'll be tough because, it's a very bruising primary. And the thing is, the type of rhetoric that gets brought into these primaries could force Brian Kemp to take a very hard right stand, a stand that may not necessarily be popular with the voters in suburban Atlanta that helped carry into victory last time. So that's my take on the governor's race. And I believe you had asked about Senate as well. And for that, I think Warnock begins as favored. Uh, I've had it rated at lean Democrat um, for split ticket. And my reasoning for that is Warnock begins with a huge fundraising advantage, about $23 million in the bank. And he begins with incumbency, a way to ensure that, you know, well, he's got a very good profile in the state, which also, and he's also got a very good black turnout operation. And you've got Abrams and Warnock, two black candidates on the ticket. Historically in Georgia, that has typically meant black turnout goes up in midterms, and the black voter base in Georgia is very engaged. So I tend to think Georgia as a state is less prone to the midterm curse, per se, for Democrats than a state like Nevada would be. And I know the poll said Warnock is down by one to Walker. The truth is, if Joe Biden is still at 40% approval rating in November, that's probably correct. It'd be a toss-up in Walker and Warnock would have about even odds to win. One point is within the margin of error. But if Biden's approval rebounds, I tend to think Warnock is favored, and I think he outruns Abrams by a couple points. He was stronger in the suburban areas like Forsyth, Cherokee, um, Gwinnett, Cobb. Warnock got better numbers there, and he even outran Abrams, I believe, in the rurals. So I think all around – Democrats could feel a lot better about Raphael Warnock's chances than Stacey Abrams. And I think he's probably the favorite right now against Herschel Walker, who many Republicans have expressed concerns about his candidacy. Yeah, well, a lot of material to kind of, you know, re-engage with. And uh, one, I've postulated, and I don't mind, you know, postulating again, 
that I do think there's a lot of Republicans that won't vote for Brian Kemp, some real hardcore Donald Trump supporters. And whereas some of the um, Kemp supporters that may not support Purdue, if Purdue was the nominee, they'd go ahead and vote for him. Um, do you think that the vote fall-off might be significant or insignificant for Brian Kemp? You know, I think the it's an asymmetric split in the sense that I think there will be a lot of Kemp voters who may not vote for Purdue. Um, remember, Purdue is no longer as popular in Georgia as he once was. He lost the Senate race. Um, a lot of the Georgia GOP blames him for losing that race, you know, ducking the debate with Ossoff, uh, his insider trading scandal stuff. But then also he's running now as this hard right um, anti-election slash pro-election subversion candidacy. And that tends to turn off a lot of the voters <laughs> in districts. Um, that in the suburban districts that, you know, Democrats have made huge gains in. So I think there's a good argument to be made that a lot of suburban Republicans would not pull the trigger for David Perdue, but they would vote for Brian Kemp. But I don't necessarily know that it's true the other way around. I think that a lot of people in the rurals will end up voting for Brian Kemp anyways if they turn out because they're not going to vote for a Democrat and they don't have a credible option otherwise. I could see there being a little bit of an undervote, but they're not going to vote for Stacey Abrams. Whereas a lot of Kent voters could very conceivably vote for Stacey Abrams if David Perdue comes out to be the nominee. So I think Perdue is a very dangerous gamble for the Georgia GOP. Okay. Uh, and it's it's an interesting discussion, no doubt. Um and then one more question on Georgia, and I'm going to pass it to Catherine and then Tim for other things. Um, Herschel Walker, um, you talked about the liabilities. Um, we're hearing about a lot about it and within the political insiders, but I don't think it's gotten out to the general Georgia voters. Um, how ugly do you think that's going to have to, to get that messaging to really, um, you know, you know, really honestly think Herschel Walker's candidacy. Pretty ugly. I think um, Walker is a front runner right now. He has no challengers. I don't expect him to have any major challengers that, who would pose a risk in the primary. And my guess is that you'll probably see Warnock lie low for quite a bit. And, you know, I don't see any effort by the Republican establishment to sink Herschel Walker's candidacy because they don't really have another choice. And so I think if that holds, you'll probably see Warnock kick up the advertising, kick up the messaging, and a lot of the negative advertising begins to come out if, say, you're in September and Walker is still polling within the margin of error against Warnock. Because Warnock has a huge cash advantage, and I think he'll continue to have that. And I think, bluntly, Republicans have better opportunities in other states where they might be more focused. I've talked to some Republican pollsters who actually think Nevada and Arizona are both better flip opportunities for the Republicans, and even one of those states would end up probably giving them the majority, unless then Philip Pennsylvania, in which case they would need both. But, yeah. Yes. Well, it is going to be fascinating, um, both of the you know statewide races in Georgia. But I'm going to pass it over to Catherine Smith. Catherine? Hey, thanks. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. We really appreciate having you. Quite and congratulations on your on your new venture. That's always exciting. 
Um, Thank you. I, I would just like to get your feelings on what do you think the most interesting or um, volatile, maybe, um, Senate races, primary Senate races are going to be in the – in 2022, like where, where, where are we going to be? What are we going to be hearing the most about? Like, is it going to be Pennsylvania or, you know, what, what, where are we going to be? Where are all the reporters going to be? <laughs> I think Pennsylvania in a nutshell, um, there's uh, just a mess on both sides right now. On the Democratic side, you've got Connor Lamb versus John Fetterman versus Malcolm Kenyatta, all of which are in virtual ties right now in terms of chances. Um, then on the Republican side, you got Mehmet Oz versus um, David McCormick. No one can seem to agree on who's ahead there. And, you know, I think especially in primary season, that will probably be the one where most people spend the most time there because it is highly candidate-specific. Um, you know, Republican polls themselves, uh, some of them find that Lamb beats Oz, but Fetterman versus Oz or, um, you know, uh, Kenyatta versus Oz, that's much closer, and that's, that's within the margin of error where no one can really figure out who has the clearest advantage. Um, and there's some folks think McCormick is a stronger candidate than Oz, so you know, there's probably a little bit of a preference from some Republican figures in, um, in D.C. and in strategy to have McCormick as a nominee. And if that's the case, there will probably be a push. You can see it already. Oz doesn't get much support in straw polls at party conventions and party meetings and things like that. But Oz also has an insanely high name recognition. And McCormick right. doesn't have that much time to cut into it. And so it's really that question of, you know, where, where does this, how do Republicans deal with this? Do they just let the primary take its course, which would, I think, probably see Oz win, or do they want to intervene and get a candidate who they think would be more electable because Oz has a bunch of liabilities in and of itself? And on the Democratic side, it's, you know, we've got Lamb versus Fetterman, and that has caused the online Twitter sphere to explode, and there's a lot of oh yeah, but with this latest with this latest latest state poll where they couldn't even pick a, endorse someone to endorse, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the primary convention, they Lamb almost secured the endorsement. He got 159 votes. Fetterman got I think 64, and that's just one of those things where again it shows you the party momentum is behind Lamb, partially because they have better relationships with him, partially because they're they think he's more electable, but Fetterman has a money advantage, and that goes a long way. And so you really can't pick a side here in terms of who you think is favored, although momentum is very firmly on Lamb's side. But there's still four months to the primary, so let's see. Right, and all we all know there something can happen. Something can you know anything can happen. Anything can happen, yeah. and you know we've all seen it, and. In some ways, it, it um, is uh, hope. I like that we ha- when we have two good candidates in a primary, because then if uh, at least two, then if something does happen, we have a backup. <laughs> That's yeah, my exactly. those are my democratic my democratic values showing through that you know we know, it's good to have a backup. 
And, and, and are there any other um, races that you think are going to be, you know, highlighted, yeah, and, or, or is it just Pennsylvania? I think the thing is Pennsylvania is the only really contested Democratic primary, and all the others, either the incumbent is running or the nominee is already pretty certain. In Wisconsin, you have Mandela Barnes. In um, North Carolina, you have Sherry Beasley. Um, you know, in Ohio, you have Tim Ryan. And so those on the Democratic side aren't as contested. There are several states with interesting Republican primaries. So you've got Alabama, Mo Brooks versus Katie Britt. Uh, Brooks looked to have had it locked up a little while back, but series and missteps from the campaign, a surge from Katie Britt has seen, you know, Britt narrow this significantly to where some people are arguing that Britt is favored. And I honestly, I don't have a good rebuttal for them because I think you can make that argument very clearly. Um, Ohio, the two well, Alabama to po- be- politics are. Alabama politics are crazy anyway. I mean, it's yeah, it's the wild, wild west over there. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, Missouri is a state where um, a lot of Republicans are. I, I personally think the Republicans will win no matter who they nominate, and I have it rated a safe Republican for that reason. Some figures are saying publicly. You know, if Greitens wins the primary, well, Eric Greitens has had scandal after scandal. He had to resign from governorship of Mississippi or of, of Missouri for allegations of assault and uh, blackmail and things like that. Folks like Mitch McConnell have said that could put the race in play if Greitens is a nominee. I don't think so. I think that's just Mitch McConnell saying, I don't want to deal with Eric Greitens in the Senate and neither do you. So let's try to get someone else in by his. <laughs> electability right. argument. But the truth is the de facto election in Missouri is the primary for the Republicans. Right. Well, that's and then very, there's very helpful. And Oh, go ahead, Arizona. Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, Arizona no, and Ohio, was... both, both of the candidates are, you know, in a, lost in a race to try to consider Trump's endorsement, which includes making farther and farther statements to the right and at some point, you wonder if that backfires in the general election. I think it's more likely to backfire in Arizona than Ohio, but we'll see. Well, we have a lot to be look a lot to look forward to in the next, you know, few months as these uh, all these primaries start to pop up. I really appreciate your insight, and now I'm going to pass it over to Tim for more questions. Thanks so much. Yeah. Uh, good evening, sir. Thank you for being with us tonight. Now, you you have painted a rather grim picture for Democrats in in Senate races based on something that you referred to as educational polarization. But with members of Generation Z being well-educated as well as more likely to have at least one college-educated parent, Shouldn't Dems actually benefit in races in the future? So uh, I think there's two ways to approach this. Number one is let's talk about the near future, right, the, the uh-huh. next five years. I think here what you see is a couple of things. One is, you know, yes, Gen Z has much more, much higher rates of college education, but mm-hmm. – the thing is, you have to look at where, what states are, what the balance of power in the states are. The median state is actually R plus five relative to the nation. And so 
basically this combined with the fact that Democrats have a very unfavorable Senate map means that, okay, let's say, you know, the electorate keeps getting younger. Um, If we're being blunt, let's assume that age turnover keeps happening. And as age turnover happens and the churn in migration and immigration happens, Democrats tend to gain, David Shore had actually said, they tend to gain about half a percent in margin on average. I think gets a little bit closer to like about a percent from like every four years, right? So 2020, let's say B plus 4.5. 2024, if you kept everything constant, just generational churn would probably make it D, five, D plus five and a half. That mm-hmm. helps. But the problem is, the problem is that this doesn't solve the issue of the fact that the, a lot of states in America still have Democrats getting much higher shares of white non-college voters as compared to, you know, the room for growth that they have with white, white college voters. So one thing that I did was I took the ratio of, you know, what's the estimated ratio of Biden voters who are white non-college to Trump voters who are white college. And the theory goes, as educational polarization accelerates, you know, you could expect Trump voters who are more, uh, Trump voters who have a degree to eventually pull the trigger for the Democrats, whereas the Democrats who don't have a degree who are white non-college they would probably, on the whole, start to slide right. That's the theory, at least. And I don't think mm-hmm. the impact of age-based polarization, um, I don't think that impact is enough to offset it in the short-term future. Because I think in the short-term future, especially with the fact that Democrats are likely to have an unfavorable midterm in 2022 – a very, very tough Senate map in 2024, you know, you're looking at Democrats, probably the median case is a 55-seat Republican Senate. And that would mean, okay, by the time, you know, by the time that you could really talk about this age churn really hitting effect, well, by then, Democrats have, number one, probably already slid pretty far um, in the Senate, they would have probably lost Wisconsin. They might lose both seats in Nevada. You know, um, they could even be in a little bit of danger in Maine. That's actually unsure of. But let's say to lose Wisconsin and Nevada, let's say they're at 55, 45 in the Senate, uh, deficit to Republicans, 10 seats. That's a lot to make up. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. puts you at a serious disadvantage about 5, 10 years. After that, who knows? You know, things change so quickly yeah. in politics, you can't really say much beyond 10 to 15 years. But now you just mentioned Wisconsin. As you know, in recent elections, when incumbent senators were running for re-election in states where the opposition party had won the most recent presidential election, well, it didn't fare very well. Well, Pennsylvania is one of two states that Joe Biden won where Republicans are defending the state. The other one is the state of Wisconsin. So is Ron Johnson going to buck the national trend? You know, this is something that a lot of people have speculated on. I think there's uh-huh. a good argument to be made that Ron Johnson is a worse than average incumbent. He's made a lot of problematic statements that are out of step with his, you know, with, with the general electorate of Wisconsin. There's the anti-vaccination stances are not popular among general electorates. 
majority of Wisconsinites are vaccinated, there is good reason to think that Johnson by himself has a better degree of vulnerability. I think he's currently the favorite to win, but I think he has about, you know, one in three odds of losing, one in four odds of losing. And those mm-hmm. aren't those aren't small odds. But on the mm-hmm. whole, I think partisanship being what it is, it's much harder for me to see Johnson lose now as it would have been, you know, maybe 12 to 15 years ago where mm-hmm. we might be dealing with a electorate that's more elastic, more willing to cross over. I don't necessarily know that the offset of the midterm effect is going to be significant enough to sink Ron Johnson, and I think Johnson probably wins for that reason. Okay. Well, moving over to another state right quick, you probably didn't expect to be asked about this state, but in New Hampshire, uh, Governor Sununu uh, made big news when he announced that he will not run against Senator Hassan. He he will run uh, for re-election instead. Does that essentially cede the race to her? I don't think it cedes it to her. I think if there is enough um, I think if there's enough of a backlash nationally to Joe Biden, Democrats are going to have to start playing ball in states like New Hampshire much more seriously than they are now. And I think they know that and they're taking it seriously. But mm-hmm. all that being done, I would say it makes Republicans' jobs a lot harder because Sununu is the type of candidate who would have made that race a toss-up. And mm-hmm. he's not there. Now Republicans are dealing with Chuck Morse or Don Bolduc, neither of which are amazing candidates. Um, Bolduc has, Mm -hmm. again, one of the folks who has made a lot of statements that are quite out of step with what you would expect in a Biden plus seven state. And so this is where, you know, Republicans would have to hope that the national environment gets bad enough for Democrats to where even someone like Bolduc or Morse would be able to win, but we are talking, in my opinion, the environment would have to be, you know, R plus seven or worse for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that that can't happen. I'm just saying that if that's the median case, Hassan is much more likely than not to win Mm re-election. Now, final question before I throw it back to David, and this is a best case scenario type thing, but the way you're looking at the map now, will U.S. Senate races be nationalized? I think they will be. And mm-hmm. um, I, I think the ones that will be are um, probably, I would say, in this order, Pennsylvania. Um, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada, uh, Georgia, Wisconsin. I think those are the ones, those are the five that will probably be most nationalized then. The next tier, you have Wisconsin, you have North Carolina, or sorry, not Wisconsin, New Hampshire, North Carolina. And I'm sure some folks will try to make a play in Florida, but I'll be very blunt. I don't see Marco Rubio losing. Not now, not, mm-hmm. not in November. I don't think there's a chance that Democrats have there bluntly. And so I think really the five that I mentioned, the five battlegrounds, um, Nevada, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Wisconsin, those are probably the five ones where you'll see the be nationalized the most. All right. I thank you for that, sir. And we'll throw it back to David at this time. David? Yes. Well, I want to ask about one more Senate race. We haven't really – you may have mentioned the state name, but nothing more. 
Alaska has some really uh, a strange election procedure in which um, the way they run their primary. And Kelly and Kelly T, I don't, I don't know how to pronounce Kelly's name. Kelly Shabaka, She's running yeah. hard with the Trump endorsement. Are you going to fix and tell us? What would you say? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Think, you know, Kelly Shabaka, I think, is favored Shibaka. to return to the Senate. Or not to re- return, uh, to win the Senate election. I think she um, – Alaska's ranked choice voting – means Murkowski will probably make it to the top two. She will be, um, you know, in the – she'll be running head-to-head with Chewbacca, and she'll get her support from Democrats and independents. Chewbacca will get it from the Republicans. That said, I tend to think that Murkowski loses this election because she's not popular with the Republican base any longer, and Trump will endorse against her, and that probably means – Murkowski will end up as second, and I think that's why I would rate her as an underdog to return to the Senate. Now, I'm not saying that she's dead in the water, far from it. I think she has a very good chance, but I don't think I can say that she's favored right now because I think Trump is going to put the full force of his efforts against Lisa Murkowski, and I think that will be probably – enough to make it a little bit enough to make it conceivable to where not only Murkowski is not favored to win re-election, I could say you can make a credible argument that Kelly Shibaka is. So you don't think that the independent plus uh, Democratic vote plus whatever just hardcore Murkowski support she has is enough to push her through? I think it could be. I just I don't necessarily know that it'll be enough. Um, the thing is, a lot of people think that ranked choice voting has, you know, has every voter ranking candidates, but it, it actually has something a little bit more, uh, I guess, nuanced in that a lot of voters don't actually finish their ballots. Some of them just vote for one candidate and toss the rest out, you know, and I anticipate a lot of people will do that with Kelly Shibaka, those put her at the top, and then the rest will be left blank. Um, mm. And I, I, think, I think at the heart of it, there are quite – Murkowski has a lane, but I don't – I'll put it this way. Donald Trump got, I think, 51% in Alaska, um, and I think – Murkowski will probably the, – the Republican vote in that state, of the Republicans, that will go break largely to Kelly Shibaka. Now, there will be a couple of independent candidates, as there always are in Alaska. Some of them will probably rank Murkowski first. A couple of them will rank Shibaka first, but most of them will probably rank Murkowski first. But when all is said and done and when all is tallied up, I think it's as close to a jump ball as you could get. And I think Shibaka probably has a slight edge because I expect a lot of money to be poured by Trump against Murkowski. And yeah. Yeah. Well, that's going to be interesting to see. And, um, and of course, that's another data point on ranked choice voting. And, and I, I kind of suppose you're right. I remember the um, pizza analogy explaining it. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, there's some toppings I really like and there's some really toppings I really don't like. And there's some stuff in the middle like green peppers. 
if it's on there, I'll eat it. If it's not, I'm not mad. You know, and I guess if you had a, enough candidates, you know, like three and four candidates to rank choice is reasonable, but like 14, yeah, there's some, you know, <laughs> I'm not going that far down, and I'm pretty hardcore political. Um, well, Lachelle, I want to thank you for coming on the show tonight. Um, before you leave, uh, tell our listeners where to follow you on social media. Tell us where to, to read up on Split Ticket and anything else you might want to share. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Love talking with you guys. My handle on Twitter is LXEagle17. Um, and then Split Ticket's website is split-ticket.org. Um, hopefully, whatever you guys find there, you like. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. Really appreciated it and really enjoyed speaking with you guys. Yes, thanks thank for you having so me much. on. Thank you, sir. Take care, guys. Yes. All right. LaShia Jane of Split Ticket. Uh, good to have his analysis. Um, and that is interesting, that information you shared right at the end on, on um, ranked choice voting, because that is a, a new and novel um, uh, uh, way of voting. And it's going to be interesting to see as more states or states and municipalities that have picked up on it do it, what kind of uh, information we find out before more states pick it up. Um, well, let's just kind of get back into that Georgia poll that we mentioned early on in the interview. Um, I know I sent you all the links to both of them. Uh, Tim, what were some of your uh, thoughts on that poll? Well, <laughs> um, um, I'm, I'm still convinced that that uh, Stacey Abrams should run at the top of the ticket and that Reverend Warnock will run a little bit behind her. I do not doubt that both races are very close right now. We're a number of months out, uh, primaries, especially on the Republican side in the governor's race, have still got to be settled. That thing is going to be really nasty as it gets closer to May. And uh, what happens in that primary, for instance, could not only affect the governor's race, but all the other races too, in in either a positive or negative way for either party, um, especially you know with, with the Republicans, they they could win, possibly win or lose a lot of races by what happens uh, in in the primary there. Uh, but I do not doubt that these races are close. I certainly do not believe that Stacey Abrams is any seven points behind. That That's ridiculous. I, I don't believe that for a moment. Okay. Uh, Catherine, I know you've already said about a poll, and it's, you, you're still very skeptical of it. Um, your thoughts on the two polls, anything you've gleaned from it? Well, I didn't look really closely at it, but I just think that these Walker-Warnock numbers, are going to be drastically different different once Herschel Walker starts talking more and we, and and it's revealed that he really doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, we saw we've seen a little bit of it in some of these videos that he's done, but I just think especially if they do um, any kind of debates or forums or anything, I just think Warnock's going to wipe the table with him. Unless they, you know, lower everyone's expectations like they did with George W. Bush, but um, I just, I, I just can't believe that that Herschel Walker 
is gonna is is ahead of will continue to be ahead of Warnock. But other than that, yeah, I think I you're right about closely. the debates would just be very brutal uh, and one sided, and, and you're not going to deal with COVID. You would assume by then to where you can't have a debate, and so therefore you may go back to traditional debates. Although. You know, Herschel Walker may get out in advance of the RNC's uh, presidential position and just say he doesn't want to do debates um, so he doesn't have to talk. And then how, you know, Reverend Warnock can um, play that will be interesting. Um, I will say the number that I gleaned from it that was very interesting was in that UGA poll, and I sent this number to you, Reverend Warnock was winning independence. And I thought, man, that's a pretty good number because I think if this – and I saw uh, Evan Scrimshaw uh, say the same thing as far as the Georgia poll. This is probably the nadir for for, for Democrats. I don't think it can get much worse than the political environment is right now. So you you have to think you're going to be the same or better, hopefully better by then. And if Warnock is winning independence, he probably wins. Now, that said, right. Stacey Abrams was losing independence in that same poll, and that can't be a real positive. But that also uh, means that you have Warnock-Kemp voters um, that exist, and you, you want to be on the whichever side of that splitting of tickets happens. You know, um, Tim, well, I think you want to jump in. What if, yeah, what if it's Warnock? Uh, could you picture any Warnock-Purdue voters? You know, what if Purdue gets Possibly the Republican nomination? How does that change fire? everything? Yeah. Uh-huh. And, I, and, and here's the thing. I still think – and I think there's some fall off where maybe people just don't – I mean, these folks seem very, very angry at um, at uh, uh, Brian Kemp about the election. I mean, obviously so wrongfully so. I mean, they're angry at Brian Kemp. They're angry at Brad Raffensperger. They're angry – at Jeff Duncan. They're just angry at the world. I mean, I saw, I actually saw for the first time up in North Georgia in the mountains this weekend, Vernon Jones signs that were actually in yards and not in, on vacant lots. I didn't know those existed in Georgia, but apparently there were two or three. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, those kind of folks, they are not going to vote for Brian Kemp. And if you add up, you know, if this race gets into, you know, 10,000 votes or less in a margin, those people sitting on their hands, that could be real damage for Brian Kemp. Um, so so yes. I think that is an interesting thing that has to evolve. But I do think that, that – and I see I disagree. I think Raphael Warnock is running better. Um, he's an incumbent. I mean incumbency has a, a value to it. And then he has uh, run twice and won, and people seem to be comfortable with him. They, you know, they threw everything but the kitchen sink at him last campaign, and it really didn't seem to hurt his favorability. So – what new revelations are there going to be? I can't imagine there are going to be any because they already had them all. And for the you know these this two year period, he's going to be in D.C. But, being a senator. You know, he didn't have time to do. You know what else. I think? You know what I? You know why I think <laughs> she's going to run better? Because I think she's it's far more likely that she runs against the wounded candidate. Far, far more likely. Yeah. It, but but then Herschel Walker kind of starts off wounded, just from you know it was so it's, he's going to be personally likable. I mean, people are going to remember the football career, but he's 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 like everything that we think about Tommy Tuberville times ten, 
and then he's not running in Alabama, where they but, almost selected a, cha- a child pedophile. There's a but there, too, yeah. David. The fact is he don't have really any um, – nothing – in any heavy opposition, obviously, according to the polls in the Republican primary, he can get very deep into this campaign without saying much of anything. Right? Uh, yeah, maybe. And I tell you what, Gary Black has really got to to look and go, why did I give up the agriculture commissioner spot for this quixotic run for um, <laughs> the, the, the nomination? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's really been a miscalculation at this point. Well, I want to thank again our guest, Lakshia Jane, and until next week, been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, everybody. Good night, guys.